The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaiad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. I'm not a journalist, not an anchor. I'm just somebody trying to get people out of their echo chamber, somebody who's got skin in the game. Uh, joining me for the hour is our special guest, Anders Asland. And for those that are listening, this, as much as we usually talk about markets, I wanted to, again, have a conversation, more understanding what's happening with Russia-Ukraine, because I think there's a lot of confusion. The media has a certain way of reporting things. And I want to get somebody that's kind of more on the objective side, obviously, who's an expert in the space. So, Anders, again, I appreciate the time here. For those who are not familiar with your background, talk to the audience who you are and what got you involved in being an expert when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, thank you very much for your invitation. I'm uh, originally a Swedish citizen. I did my PhD at Oxford on private enterprise in uh, Eastern Europe, Poland, and uh, East Germany, because uh, I thought that communists would uh, soon collapse. I completed the dissertation in 1982. I worked as a, a Swedish uh, diplomat for nine years, uh, in particular in the, uh, Moscow from 1984 to uh, 1987. And I worked as an economic advisor to the Yeltsin Gaida government, from 91 to 94. After that, I worked as an economic advisor to President Kuchma, 94 to 97. And since then, I kept up with uh, Russia and Ukraine. In particular, I kept very close relations with uh, various uh, Ukrainian um, uh, uh, governments. And I've uh, written 15 books and edited uh, 16 books about essentially Russian economic transformation and reforms, Ukrainian uh, uh, economic reforms, uh, East European economic reforms and transformation uh, in general. Sure, sure. And, and I want you to play the role of educator for the audience because a lot of people on Twitter, I think, skew towards a younger generation. And, uh, you know, again, the media has a certain way of, of explaining things, but nobody really has the full context or historical perspective, uh, like someone uh, like you, right, who's, who's followed it and, and been a, a, on the diplomacy side as well. If you wouldn't mind, kind of talk through just a little bit of the history of Russia and Ukraine, because I, people, I think, kind of have a vague awareness of 
why, what the history is, but I don't think they really fully understand the details. So I want you to just put a little narrative around what got us to a point where Russia goes into Ukraine to begin with. What's the history behind the two? <laughs> Big and difficult question, but trying to let me try to do it uh, simply. When I lived in uh, Moscow in the mid-1980s, there were about five things that you could buy in normal Russian shops. It was mineral water, vodka, uh, dark bread, uh, salt, well, and matches, hardly anything else. So this was, uh, we as diplomats imported everything. One could buy things uh, on the, the, the Kolkhoz market. And the general attitude when I arrived in Moscow in 1984 was that nothing will ever change here. Everything will be exactly the same. And I think that Zbigniew Brzezinski got it perfectly right when he, he called um, uh, the, the Soviet Union a third world country with uh, uh, nuclear arms, because it was really uh, looking as poor as uh, India that I just visited uh, b b before. And then Gorbachev, open everything up and said that uh, this has to change. We can't go on like this any longer and exposed all the awfulness of the Soviet Union. The result was that the Russians, to my amazement, took all this uh, uh, terrible news about how awful uh, things had been and I said, this can't go on and it couldn't go on. Then uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin, who's my great hero, uh, came in and he uh, was very much uh, a man of depressive character, like uh, Churchill or de Gaulle, had his great moments. And then in between, he had his terrible moments when he was uh, drinking himself out of his um, depression. He understood everything has to change, but he didn't have stamina uh, to carry it out. Jensen concentrated on two things. Break up the Soviet Union. It was he who did it. And he did so peacefully. And we have economic reform. While he failed on two, uh, three major points, he uh, cut down the KGB, but not fully. Putin has put it back. And he uh, uh, did not call for early elections. Uh, therefore, democracy never fully established uh, itself. And uh, there were no uh, lawyers among the reformers. So therefore, nobody really knew how to build the rule of law. And uh, Jeltsin, to his honor, uh, did carry out substantial economic reforms in the 1990s, but he did not have enough uh, political power uh, to control um, inflation. So therefore, Russia had hyperinflation in 1992, and it continued to be a big uh, problem. When Putin came in uh, in 1999, growth had already started. And he moved, uh, he really arrived at the lay table. But you know how politics is. People think that it's not um, the situation, but it is the person who rules who's uh, important. So Russia had an average growth of 7% a year from 99 to 2008. After that, Russia has hardly had any economic growth because when Putin's uh, corruption took over. What Putin stands for is essentially two things. Organized crime with, with corruption and authoritarianism. And in order to justify that, he needs what the Russians call small 
victorious wars. He had one in Georgia in 2008. He had another annexing um, Crimea in uh, 2014. And he wanted another one now. So that's why we have a war in Ukraine. Putin wants, uh, on the one hand, to become more popular. His uh, popularity has again risen to the uh, 80s. And uh, he also wants to have an excuse uh, to increase uh, uh, repression. I want to go to, to the point about post-08, sort of the economic growth for a moment being, you mentioned the slide, is because of the corruption and authoritarianism. And I think post-great financial crisis, you could argue that you end up having sort of two very different responses coming out of Lehman, right, by central banks and obviously the U.S. in a very different growth trajectory than most of the emerging economies, not just Russia, but arguably Brazil and others have no significant growth. Part of that is not just, I would argue, because of corruption, but also because of cycles in the sense that, correct, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Russia's economy, you know, really does need to have higher commodity prices. So I'd like you to talk through that dynamic a bit as far as a sort of, you know, interplay of the corruption on the Putin government side and sort of the broader weakness in commodities affecting economic activity for the last decade. And I know you're right. This, uh, the Russian government has blamed low commodity prices uh, for the lower economic growth. But then you look up on the situation, and uh, it's right that countries like South Africa uh, and Brazil have had extremely little growth, or very little growth uh, in recent years. But, uh, sorry, they have the same problem as Russia. Uh, they, they are both... Uh, profoundly corrupt countries. And um, uh, the problem of bad governance uh, gets worse when you reach a certain level. So economists talk about something uh, called the middle income uh, trap, that when you reach about $10,000 a year in GDP per capita, then you easily get into the... Uh, the middle income uh, trap. And the, the problem here is that uh, you need better governance at a higher level of economic uh, development. Uh, think of the first stages of uh, economic development. What is it? It's essentially to utilize um, raw materials. Think of steelworks and mines uh, and also large-scale uh, agriculture. These are the typical developments uh, in, at the early stages. How do you manage these kinds of companies? You want big companies. There are huge uh, economies uh, of scale. And uh, you don't need good governance. You want to have concentrated ownership in the hands of um, a few robber barons. That's how the U.S. De developed before World War I. Uh, and that's how Russia and Ukraine have developed uh, after the end of, um, of uh, communism. It has been bain, mainly been oil, metals, gas, uh, and uh, chemicals, also agri agriculture. Now they need to move on to other the sectors. And that's what uh, they, they, they can't do. And of course, uh, a modern economy does nothing. Is it the oil price that does it? Central Europe that has pretty good uh, governance, thanks to the European Union. They have uh, had a, a growth in recent years between th 3 and 5% uh, uh, a year, while Russia has had an, a growth of uh, zero. 
So this is a, is the big difference. So I prefer to compare Russia with Central Europe rather than um, uh, Brazil and South Africa that really suffer from the same problems uh, uh, as Russia. But to sum it up, we have three problems that influence uh, the growth. Uh, you rightly mentioned the oil price. Uh, you also have uh, uh, the Western sanctions. Uh, I've written a paper together with a colleague, uh, Maria Snigavaya, uh, and we assess that they're about equally important. And then you have uh, the problem of uh, bad governance or, or corruption or kleptocracy, that I prefer to call it. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Okay, so growth goes nowhere, but from everything I've seen, Putin's wealth keeps on increasing. And I've seen some that would argue that he's pretty much the richest man on earth. So that kind of lends to a question that I've often thought about, and I think others would argue the same, that sanctions may not really be effective because it doesn't affect him personally, at least from what I've seen yet. So I'd like you to talk through your view on the history of sanctions, whether they're effective. If I've heard you say that you think we need to go further with these sanctions, but again, with this caveat that it's not clear, at least maybe to me in the audience, that these sanctions would actually deter him on an individual basis because he's not really feeling the pain because he's so wealthy. Yeah, I think that one should look up on the sanctions uh, more in context of uh, the national economy. First, uh, sanctions were a deterrent. Uh, President uh, Biden threatened Putin repeatedly with very severe uh, sanctions. Since so many had threatened Putin with severe sanctions before, this clearly did not have uh, much credibility. So the deterrent was not uh, effective. Then you have an idea of sanctions as a punishment, which is pretty unclear what it really means. I try to avoid that. But what we do have today is sanctions as a means of reducing the economic power of Russia, which means also military power. Russia's military expenditure, if we uh, uh, count them appropriately, or approximately 6% of GDP. That's the level that uh, Reagan maintained throughout his uh, uh, presidency in the, in the US. So it's not a lot. The, officially, they are about 4% of uh, GDP. In reality, there are a lot of costs that are not uh, uh, included. So that is not very much. And Russia's GDP before this uh, calamity called uh, Putin's war on uh, Ukraine was uh, about one and a half trillion dollars, while the US GDP today is 22 trillion dollars, and uh, the EU GDP is almost as large. So Russia is really a small power. 
slightly bigger than uh, Spain uh, now, and uh, it's uh, spending a disproportionate amount on uh, defense, but uh, still not uh, not that uh, that much. So this, you know, is to make sure that Russia loses this. Uh, the current uh, forecast for the Russian economy this year are falling. Uh, recently, there have been 10 to 15 percent decline. I think it's much more likely to be 20 percent decline. Why we are so uncertain about it is because we don't know what effect the sanctions will have. We can uh, see what the financial sanctions do. They, they tighten up Russia so that there will be less consumption and less investment. What we can't see very well, it is the new export controls, how effective they will be and how much uh, they will mean. So, for example, it seems that all production in Russia of cruise missiles and tanks has ceased because you need semiconductors of them for them and they are not uh, available any longer. Uh, the Russian car production, not notably of uh, Lada or Jigoli in uh, Togliatti, now owned by uh, Renault, is still being produced, but without uh, any consumer electronics. Who would like such a car? Uh, not you and me, at least, or anybody who's listening. So uh, it's uh, doubtful that these are at all saleable if they manage to, to produce these uh, uh, at all. So I think that uh, these sanctions will be far more effective because they are really uh, is isolating Russia. But then we also have another kind of sanctions. That's uh, sanctions that are going after people love to say the oligarchs. I should rather say Putin's friends and family. I was very happy when Putin himself and his daughters were sanctioned. That was really matters. In 2014, the United States sanctioned four of Putin's closest business friends from St. Petersburg. And uh, while Putin generally says that the sanctions don't matter, he complained no less than five times in public within the next year uh, that it was very unfair, even against the, the human rights, to sanction uh, his friends uh, just before because they were his friends. Uh, the reality of it is that they are in all probability uh, his uh, business um, partners, and it's with these people that Putin probably has a fortune of 100 to $150 billion. I am curious if, when you look at the history of sanctions that are close to this severe that we've seen so far, does it tend to make the local population of that country more nationalistic, meaning they end up siding more with Putin as they themselves feel the brunt of the economic pain? Or do they actually put more, does it cause the people to put more pressure on, on the leadership? I'm curious sort of the, the crowd's reaction to that. Who, where does the blame go? Vital question. The general answer is that uh, uh, sanctions normally do not undermine a leader. Uh, the, the current big sanctions are on uh, four countries. North Korea, well, uh, that's a very pe peculiar case. Venezuela, not so peculiar. Iran and Cuba. So Cuba and North Korea are the cases where uh, simply the, the leadership has been entrenched, but the economy is going down the drain. Who cares? Uh, 
Iran is more interesting because uh, there we have had different uh, developments and it has gone back and forth. So there you can find different uh, interpretations. And uh, in Venezuela, it is uh, quite disappointing. Uh, If you take 2019, when the U.S. uh, sanctions really hit hard, that's the uh, Trump sanctions on Venezuela, GDP fell by 35%. And uh, uh, Nicolas Maduro, uh, who seems to be a a, a not very smart character, uh, stayed in, in power. So this uh, uh, record is not very uh, positive. But if you turn back to um, South Africa, which was much more uh, complicated, uh, South Africa and Zimbabwe did have uh, transitions that were inspired uh, by uh, by sanctions. So uh, 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 there is a book by uh, my former colleague at the Peterson Institute, Gary Huffbauer, and uh, Jeffrey Schultz and others uh, that has done uh, empirical investigation of sanctions after World War II. And what they find is that 30% of the sanctions are successful, while uh, most are not. Very often sanctions are done as a matter of uh, demonstration. But the Russian sanctions today are really severe. And we can also see that when sanctions are hitting hard all of a sudden, and the Russian sanctions are quite extreme uh, right now, uh, then they have more impact. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I want to talk about timing for a moment here, because I think you can argue that if Putin were going to do the move he did, this was kind of the ideal juncture from his vantage point. You largely got out of COVID. You have uh, you had the Biden administration pulling out troops from Afghanistan. So Putin saw clearly there was not appetite for more military action or intervention from the U.S., how long, I don't know if you've seen anything on this, but how long has Putin been kind of planning to to make this move and saw the post-COVID world as the exact moment in time to do it? Yeah, this is one of the big uh, questions that we don't have a very clear answer to. But uh, uh, I think that um, there are a couple of, of few elements here. One is that Putin did uh, the war on Georgia in 2008. His popularity rating rose from the 60s to 88%. Then his uh, popularity rating fell, and he did uh, the annexation of Crimea in 2018. His popularity rating rose once again to 88%. Uh, Recently, Putin's popularity rating was down to 59%. All these numbers are from relatively independent um, uh, Levada uh, center. And now Putin's popularity rating is up uh, uh, in 83%. So 
So Putin uh, needed to get a boost to his popularity rating uh, from time to time. And also at, on each occasion, uh, Putin has increased uh, uh, repression at home. So Putin's repression now is far worse than uh, the, uh, the repression in the Soviet Union uh, under Bre uh, Brezhnev. And um, this is really approaching uh, a Stalinist level of, uh, of uh, repression, which is clearly what uh, uh, Putin wants. He has new uh, human values uh, at all. He just wants to have power and, um, and uh, uh, money. But then you ask exactly when, and here I think that the, the aspects you mentioned make it quite suitable to do it now. A new U.S. president, his favorite, uh, Trump, who what had done uh, broken out of NATO, was no longer longer there, and um, Biden would only get worse over time. Better to hit early before Biden has uh, stabilized new German uh, government, which would clearly be worse than the previous uh, government from Putin's point of view, and elections in France, which would destabilize France. I mean, these are the three uh, countries that uh, Putin think of uh, in the West. Uh, the others don't matter. Uh, clearly, Putin has no high view of uh, uh, President uh, Zelensky in Ukraine. So why not hit hard when all of them are uh, weak, uh, new or out? And um, then also oil and gas incomes have been quite extraordinary recently. So why not take the opportunity when you have uh, the money? Putin has been very concerned about his uh, international currency reserves that have been up to uh, $640 billion. Uh, and he thought this gives me sovereignty, not understanding that these uh, reserves could uh, could uh, be frozen. I think this was a, a bad surprise for uh, uh, Putin. So you can say that this was a good time for, for him to do it. I want to go back real quick to this point. You mentioned this popularity boost, that he was trying to improve his popularity rating and war, no matter where you are, tends to tends to do that. but. Maybe just educate the audience here a little bit on why does that matter? Because it's not like this is a Russia's a democracy in any traditional sense. I mean, he's not going to leave power or leave uh, his post because of unpopularity. So what what's the benefit of the popularity if it doesn't matter in terms of him staying in power or not? I guess is, is sort of the question I'm going towards. Well, uh, actually, it's uh, Professor uh, Dan Treisman, at, uh, uh, Professor of Political Science at, at uh, UCLA, who has uh, written substantially on this, that uh, uh, Russian and Soviet leaders do benefit from, um, from uh, popularity, that they have more power when they are uh, popular. So uh, one of the major problems of uh, President Yeltsin in the late 1990s is that he had very little popularity. Therefore, the parliament didn't listen to him. They uh, went in the op opposite way often, and he didn't get his uh, laws uh, through. Putin has had a strong popularity all of the time, and this has strengthened his uh, uh, grip on power in uh, general. And uh, there's other research also. So if you, uh, by and large, popularity matters for a dictator. He gets more authority and therefore more power.
Okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about the role of of Russia and the power that Russia has on the world stage, because it does seem remarkable to me that uh, food has been weaponized in the way that we are seeing it, right? You're seeing food prices go vertical. Even as we're speaking, I'm just looking at various pricings on corn, soybeans, wheat, everything is continuing to push higher and higher. And presumably, Putin knew that that was going to be a response by the markets to an invasion to into Ukraine. How important is uh, that as a bargaining chip for Putin to save face in the event that he calls it quits in Ukraine, right? Because uh, he's got to be able to come back with something, presumably to uh, his constituents or to the people. And maybe just a reminder that they have this power because of food and crops maybe enough. But I'd like you to kind of talk through that a little bit. Yeah, it's quite a complicated uh, picture. Russia and Ukraine together account for 30% of all wheat exports. And this goes through uh, uh, the Black Sea. And this means that the Ukrainian uh, wheat exports don't go now. And I think very little of Russian wheat exports also. You know, uh, grain is, uh, exports are being spread out over the year. Uh, first you harvest and then you uh, tr- transport it gradually over, over a whole year. And the countries that are suffering most now are Sri Lanka, uh, serious riots, uh, Pakistan, big um, uh, government crisis, the government has fallen. Egypt, uh, the government has not fallen yet, but there will be a serious uh, a crisis in Egypt. Peru, uh, which is not uh, in- impacted directly by uh, uh, less uh, deliveries, but by uh, serious um, uh, pri- price increases. So this is a very curious uh, situation. Did Putin calculate on this? I don't think so. Uh, And for Ukraine, uh, grain exports are about uh, 40% of total exports. For Russia, it's only a few percent. So for, uh, because Russia has all this oil and the gas and metals, uh, commodities are about 90% of Russia's total exports, but uh, grain is... uh, before for perhaps the fifth uh, most important group, of, uh, the fourth in that case would be uh, chemicals uh, such as uh, fertilizers. So Putin has started a global food crisis, which will cause uh, uh, disturbances and destabilization of a large number of uh, de- developing uh, countries. And I don't think that uh, he thought of it for Russia's income, as I said, it's not very important that uh, the grain prices in the last years uh, have uh, increased something like four times. And it also causes uh, problems with China because China is a major uh, importer of grain. And you could guess from where? From Ukraine. So Ukraine is the main exporter of corn to China. A few years ago, it took over the U.S. as the main uh, exporter of uh, corn uh, to uh, to China. So I don't think that this is good for Russia. I think that this is really a miscalculation. You have the other part of it, and that's fertilizers. 
Russia and Belarus together account for about one third of all fertilizer exports in the world. And uh, that is both uh, potash and nitrate uh, uh, fertilizers. And since this, uh, these fertilizers will not be forthcoming now, uh, uh, we will see much less of, um, of uh, harvest in many countries of the world. I guess that the two countries that will be least hit by this is the United States and Canada, because Canada is also a major fertilizer uh, producer. So the, the U.S. will get uh, those fertilizers as a reasonable price. And of course, here, uh, transportation is quite, quite important so that uh, uh, markets uh, tend to be a bit uh, localized. So I think that uh, the food impact is one of the big problems uh, for Russia uh, going forward. Let's talk a little bit, um, Anders, about the budding alliance or in, in strengthening relationship between Russia and China here for a moment, because, you know, that's always sort of the, I think, the boogeyman here in the States, you know, that there becomes this sort of, and Biden alluded to this, this kind of new world order where you've got the U.S., you know, Western on one side, of course, and now you've got Russia and China kind of lining themselves more closely. Talk through a little bit the history of Russia's interactions with China and how that's been evolving as wars has been playing out with Ukraine. Yeah, uh, of course, the low point was 1969 when Russia and China were in war with one another. And uh, then it was very much the uh, the yellow uh, uh, danger, approximately, as in the, uh, the U.S., uh, that uh, the Russians uh, uh, nurtured. Uh, Putin has all the time improved the relationship with China. Uh, the relationship was quite bad between China and Gorbachev, between China and Yeltsin, and then it has improved, improved, improved. But um, if you t- take uh, a trade... Uh, both the U.S. and the European Union are many times more important for Chinese trade than than Russia. So uh, Russia is essentially exporting oil, gas, metals, uh, timber, and uh, some arms uh, uh, to China, while China is uh, exporting what it uh, does everywhere, various consumer uh, products. Uh, And uh, in this way, Russia is the underdog because it's uh, exporting commodities while China is uh, uh, exporting uh, manufacturers. Uh, They have had uh, military exercises together. And on the 4th of February, Putin was in uh, Beijing and uh, saw uh, Xi Jinping. And together they uh, issued this uh, big 5,000 words uh, statement on uh, having good relations in everything. But what has happened afterwards is that China has uh, carefully stayed, uh, stayed away from Russia in the various UN um, votes on uh, on Russia's aggression in uh, in uh, Ukraine, China did not uh, veto it in the Security Council. 
in the General Assembly also it abstained on Russia staying in the UN uh, Human Rights Council. Uh, China abstained rather than both. Uh, or actually, I'm not sure about that. Uh, but China has not been aligned with uh, Russia. It has been careful. It has not criticized the, uh, the um, Russian aggression in in Ukraine, but it has not delivered arms, if we are to believe the Pentagon's information. And um, recently, there was an issue about uh, scholarly exchanges, and China did not want to exchange scientists with Russia because they were afraid that that would uh, make China subject to secondary sanctions from the U.S. And uh, I think that China will be very careful not to go too close to Russia. At the same time, it will not uh, uh, condemn Russia. And the more time that passes uh, uh, since the war started, the more cautious uh, China is, uh, is becoming. And uh, people don't think, by and large, that uh, China will follow uh, Russia, but rather try to stay aside cautiously, not saying really anything. Do you think that um, what happened has emboldened China's plans to potentially go into Taiwan, or you know, or, or do you think that there's a, uh, a second guessing with the extreme way sanctions have hit Russia. I, I, I'm, you know, it, you always hear this kind of line in the media that, oh, you know, China's not going to do this to Taiwan now that the uh, U.S. has done so much and, and shows the world what it can do with sanctions. But uh, I, I'm curious your thoughts from, from your own experience there. I have a, a quite clear view on this. I think that the Chinese have been scared off. Uh, in the beginning, there was the idea that uh, China will now attack Taiwan. Uh, when the West is uh, being distracted. What I heard at that time from China specialists, which I'm not, of course, uh, was that no, uh, uh, Xi Jinping thinks that what is happening in or with Russia is quite insignificant. Uh, what is important is the domestic uh, Chinese uh, developments. He is not prepared to do this before the Chinese Party Congress this fall, he needs to secure his power in that first, which makes sense to me. You could make the opposite argument that could use Taiwan in order to strengthen his power before the Party Congress. But what I heard from Chinese specialists was not right. And then you have two other arguments. One is the sanctions. I think that the Chinese are really scared by the Western sanctions. They did, had not expected this degree of Western uh, sanctions, and nor uh, had they expected that they would be so, so effective. So I think that this is one big uh, issue. And uh, the, the other is simply that uh, uh, China has basically Soviet arms. And it has uh, similar arms to uh, what Russia has. And uh, Russia has been for many years the main uh, the supplier of arms to China. And then uh, the Chinese probably uh, ask themselves, are our arms really that bad? And uh, presumably they also have a lot of uh, 
military um, uh, doctrine, etc., together. So I think that the Chinese are really scared that they are quite useless. Uh, here we see that uh, uh, Western arms are so much more effective than uh, Russian arms. Uh, so who are we, the Chinese, when we have older Russian arms than, uh, than the Russians? So I think both with regard to uh, sanctions and effectiveness of uh, arms and uh, uh, armies uh, that uh, the Chinese uh, are, have all reason uh, to be scared. So I think that uh, the, uh, the most positive effect of the Russian war in uh, Ukraine uh, might be that uh, the Chinese are not likely to try to go after Taiwan after this. Yeah, the first, I don't think that uh, this is a reason for Russia uh, to pull out at all. Basically, the, um, the sewing needs to be done until the end of uh, April in, uh, in uh, Ukraine. What they say now uh, is that about 70% of uh, the sewing will be done, but then also they won't have um, fertilizers in Ukraine. So the Ukrainian harvest will be very poor. And it's another part that at present, Ukraine cannot export grain. And this is since the 24th of February. Only about 10% of the normal export takes place. And it goes by train through Poland or, or Romania. And all this means that there will be a lot of shortage of grain in the in the developing uh, world. Uh, the point previously made by Michael is that um, Russia will get more money and uh, get a larger share of it. But for Russia, this is not very important. So, um, well, for Ukraine, uh, I don't have the exact numbers, but uh, for Ukraine, uh, uh, agricultural exports is almost half. And for Russia, uh, perhaps uh, a few percent. So uh, uh, it's uh, not very important for, uh, for Russia. It's very important for the third world uh, that uh, it is not uh, getting it. So Russia is sort of blowing up a large number of countries in the developing world. I can uh, uh, suggest other countries that would really be in big mess. Yemen is obvious, uh, 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 Lebanon, obvious, the whole of uh, North Africa is in a big problem, etc. So uh, I, I, I don't understand why uh, Putin, uh, if Putin is concerned about it, I presume not, uh, and, but I don't think that it will influence his decision making. I think that the sanctions will be tightened in all regards. And if I take it more broadly, uh, financial sanctions come first. And they are not tight enough. They will be tightened, I'm convinced. The most important the sanctions are uh, to, to uh, uh, designate the top state banks to take Russia uh, most of the big Russian uh, state banks of SWIFT and to freeze the central bank uh, reserves. But they have to go, go further. They're not uh, firm enough uh, as yet. Sanctions that people talk very little about is shipping and transport. 
you probably noticed yesterday that um, uh, the EU closed the border uh, for trucks uh, between uh, uh, Belarus and uh, the European Union. And uh, shipping is also being uh, closed. That is vital. And uh, then uh, what I think will be coming, since you say uh, finance, insurance. If you can't insure, you can't do anything. So therefore, I think that insurance is uh, the next big uh, sanctioning. Of course, we also have uh, oil and gas. But if you uh, sanction shipping, then you uh, sanction half of of, uh, the Russian oil exports also. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about what's going on on the ground, because again, you know, here in the states, you make it. I think the media makes it seem like Russia is, you know, either losing or not doing as well as he as Putin hoped to. And, and so I don't, but I don't really know what the the truth is. So I'm curious from your vantage point, sitting where you are, Anders, how do you how would you assess how the war has been going? Uh, is Putin, you think, going to be in this for the long haul? Just talk through sort of the the most recent uh, information you've seen. Yeah, I mean, the war started on the 24th of February. One month later, the Ukrainians had won the battle of Kiev. Now, for over two weeks, we have waited for the next big battle, the battle of the Donbass, which will be decisive. But right now, it's unclear whether it will take place. Yesterday, the Russians uh, started talking on television shows that uh, we have already won, we have achieved what we wanted, uh, and... um, trying to say that uh, they could withdraw, which, of course, uh, would be uh, ideal. Uh, The general view is that Putin, uh, who is completely fixated on dates and uh, uh, various kinds of uh, uh, anniversaries and celebrations, that he wants to have a victory march on May 9th. How can he get a victory uh, march? uh, It's now clear that... uh, uh, Kiev is out of reach. Uh, most of Ukraine is out of reach. Uh, the Russians are in Donbass, south of Kharkiv, and they are in the south. So what Russia could claim is that they take the whole of Donetsk and uh, Lugansk Oblast, that is uh, Donbass. Uh, previously, they only held one third, and that they get the land bridge from um, uh, from uh, 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 Donetsk uh, to um, uh, uh, to Crimea. For that, they need to take uh, Mariupol, which they have spectacularly uh, failed uh, uh, to take. So I think that this looks very bad uh, for the Russians. What I'm looking for now is, will there be a battle over Donbass? Uh, and will the Russians actually take uh, Mariupol? But my understanding is that the Ukrainians still have 2,000 men or so fighting in Mariupol. The, the Russian troops are afraid of entering Mariupol because the Ukrainian troops are uh, far better than the uh, Russian uh, troops. The Russian losses have been enormous. So what the Ukrainians now say is that uh, they have killed more than 20,000 Russian soldiers. And uh, by comparison, in Afghanistan, during nine years, the Soviet Union lost uh, 15,000 soldiers. Uh, And the Ukrainians publish these numbers um, daily. 
in detail in 14 different uh, uh, groups. And what they say essentially is that they have taken out about 40% of the attacking uh, Russian uh, army uh, of 150,000 uh, men, that is uh, ground troops, not uh, including Navy and, um, and uh, Air Force. So uh, one, uh, also normally it's said that when uh, somebody has lost uh, one-third uh, of the men, then they are not, uh, they can't operate any longer. And Russia is now on the border that they can't really operate. And there are a lot of very strange things here. Uh, one is that uh, since this is a special military operation and not a war, and there has been no mobilization or declaration of war in Russia, uh, uh, you cannot be punished for deserting. So uh, soldiers are now leaving and saying, I don't want to fight. Why? Because I don't want to be killed. But then we will punish me. How? You can't punish me since this is not a war. And th th these are arguments that we hear on these um, phone calls that have been intercepted by the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, services. So uh, the Russian soldiers don't want to fight. They want to go home. And uh, it seems quite impossible for the Russians to mobilize more forces. They sent in the best forces, and the Ukrainians killed a massive number of them. The Ukrainians have killed eight out of probably 20 generals. They have killed 33 named uh, colonels. I don't know out of how many. And they have killed 20,000 out of 150,000 uh, soldiers, that's 13%. So this is devastating. They have uh, taken out 140 out of 240 helicopters. So the Russians hardly use helicopters now, while the Ukrainians use their helicopters. And uh, uh, what the Russians have is essentially heavy artillery, old-style Soviet uh, heavy artillery, and they have uh, uh, a preponderance of... Uh, uh, air Force. These are the two strengths. But uh, therefore, they are bombing, they are terror bombing uh, much of, of uh, the country uh, in order to keep uh, the Ukrainians on their toes. But uh, as we know from other such occasions, this is not very popular with the population. So the Ukrainians are b becoming ever more furious. Uh, recent opinion polls say that 93% of the Ukrainians think that they will win and 98% now consider Russia an enemy. So uh, I think that Russia is uh, simply uh, simply losing, and uh, the, the two big uh, uh, litmus tests are, uh, will there be a battle of Donbass? If so, I think the Ukrainians will win it. Will the Russians uh, take Mariupol? I don't think so, but it's quite possible. I saw that everything I just heard from you, uh, Anders, makes it seem like they are paving the way to save face to stop. And maybe sooner than than most would think. Is that a is that a fair interpretation? Because that that would have pretty big implications, which we can think through on uh, not just obviously Ukraine and Russia, but just kind of global uh, commodity prices conceivably. Yeah, I should not say it uh, quite clearly because uh, Putin sits in a bunker somewhere 
It might be in Valdai, it might be in Novaya Garyova, outside of uh, Moscow, uh, and is completely isolated from pretty much everything. So Putin might live in a, a world of himself, himself uh, that uh, has very little to do with, with uh, reality. And um, uh, he might uh, still think that he, he's winning. He might get the uh, wrong information because nobody wants uh, to give any uh, other information. Uh, lots of people in top uh, positions, notably the Minister of Defense and uh, 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 General Garasimov, the Chief of General Staff, have disappeared and uh, not been seen. There are unclear rumors that Gerasimov was killed in action on the 7th of March. I don't think it's true, but we don't know anything about him. There are strong rumors that uh, uh, Defense Minister Shoigu has had a severe uh, heart attack. He was, appeared uh, the other day, uh, was on the 14th, uh, with a completely undated meeting with his colleagues from the uh, other former Soviet republics, uh, and it looked rather as if it was a cover-up than if it was uh, a live, uh, a live uh, a session. So it seems very much that this is a war that Putin is doing on his own and uh, producing uh, quite uh, b- bizarre comments. I should add also here this uh, new general, um, uh, uh, Alexander Dvornikov, who is... Uh, uh, taking uh, command uh, over the Ukrainian operation. He was uh, the commander of uh, Russian troops in uh, uh, Syria uh, 2015 and 2016, and he stood out for two reasons, uh, or three reasons. One was that he bombed like mad. What we are seeing now the Russians are doing in uh, uh, Ukraine. The other was that he was very ineffective as a soldier. And the third is that he... Uh, uh, covered up for the uh, uh, Syrians when they used uh, uh, chemical weapons, while probably not using uh, chemical weapons uh, himself. So it looks as if Putin just wants as much cruelty as possible and that the uh, the military effectiveness is not central to him. Uh, Nobody's interested in sacrificing the Crimea. If you ask Ukrainians, they would... uh, tacitly be happy to sacrifice uh, um, Donbass. I mean, Donbass is like uh, uh, Detroit. Uh, it's uh, the worst of uh, the rust belt of, of uh, Ukraine. And it's it's not perceived as uh, very Ukrainian. And also many Ukrainians are upset about the, the people there having been pro-Russian. For, for a lot of time. So uh, uh, Crimea is essential because for uh, both Russians and Ukrainians, uh, Crimea is uh, the old Soviet uh, holiday uh, paradise. It has no economic significance. It's uh, entirely uh, uh, sent- sentimental issues. I thought it was quite clever by uh, uh, President Zelensky to say that um, he should have a referendum because it means that he can't compromise. Uh, Ukrainians will never accept anything, uh, as you suggested, uh, that is a concession to Russia. So if there is any uh, referendum, not that I think that it will be, then um, they will say no, nothing nothing uh, uh, doing. So um, 
this is a way for Zelensky to to cover uh, cover his uh, uh, bank and. Um, Generally, these conversations in Istanbul are completely meaningless. The Russian uh, uh, delegation is of a very low level. Uh, but, uh, Vladimir Medinsky, former minister of culture, who was a wild uh, a nationalist, who's now an advisor to uh, to Putin, this is no level whatsoever. I mean, this is lower than uh, a deputy minister for, for, for foreign affairs. The Ukrainian uh, level has... Uh, Recent uh, delegation is reasonably high level, but uh, I, I don't think that anybody t- takes it seriously. And both sides are really waiting for what will happen in the battle of uh, the Donbass. Uh, before that, we can't really talk. Please make sure you follow Anders Aslan again. I try to do these spaces conversations with different thought leaders daily, mainly on investing in markets, but I wanted to again switch it up. So Anders, first time you and I speaking, first time I think for you doing these uh, Twitter conversations. Definitely appreciate uh, your knowledge and expertise for this hour. And again, everybody, please make sure you follow Anders and enjoy the rest of your day. I'll do another Spaces, actually two tomorrow. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Anders. Thank you very much. My great pleasure. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.